Welcome to How Not to DM. I'm your host, Derek. Thanks for joining me on my quest to interview the very best dungeon and game masters on this plane of existence. If you'd like to help support the show, check out my link tree or my show notes for my affiliate links. Also, if you prefer to watch the show on YouTube and see me chatting with my guests in person on video, check out How Not to DM on YouTube. Episodes can be found on the T4C YouTube channel. Check out the episode notes or my link tree to make sure to subscribe and tell your friends about the new format. All right, let's jump into this week's guest intro. Neil is a game designer and GM. His current project is designing and testing Fate Earth, including creating an actual play of the game as he works on it. Enjoy. So I am old. I am that funny age where I'm slightly too young to be considered Gen X, but slightly too old to be a millennial. But suffice it to say, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. When I was about 10 years of age, my best friend in primary school, still my best friend to this day, turned around to me one day and said, Neil, I, my cousins are showing me this amazing game where you get to play like wizards and knights fighting dragons and exploring dungeons and uh, that was second edition uh dnd back in the early 90s I, yeah early 90s uh, and we were like let's try it this sounds awesome you know because i already had a love of fantasy in irish primary schools you grow up learning all the mythology from our country like it's, it's part of the curriculum you learn all mm. the myths kukulin chirnanog oceanogas naive you know the all that we learn anyway so like that's like just normal for us so I already had the years of a fantasy and all the rest of that. And he was like, we get to do this. And I was like, this is amazing. So we started playing second edition. Played it for about five years. My buddy Brian, he was pretty much always the long-suffering DM. And it was terrible because like he'd have an idea for a game. And then we'd make characters and we'd play it. And then we'd not get to play it for like a couple of months. And then he'd have another idea for a new game. So we'd make brand new characters. And we never actually played the same character more than once in like five years. It was ridiculous. And then I eventually picked up the Planescape campaign setting, which I loved. And I read the whole thing and studied it because there's quite a lot in that. Like as campaign settings go, that one I think was by far one of the most in-depth and had the most scope in it compared to some of the other ones. And I, 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 I spent like probably a month and a half, two months putting together an adventure. And the whole idea was it was going to be like, their intro into Planescape and they were exploring classic dungeon crawl and it ended with them coming out through a tunnel back into the side of the hill and a bright flash of sunlight and then they find they're not in the hill anymore and it was like they have been transported into the plains and then shortly after that we stopped playing D&D <laughs> so we never even started that campaign I was about 15 years of age and realizing that I had friends in school and a couple of my friends in school played D&D and others didn't I went to a an all-boys secondary school, which is quite typical in Ireland. And I realized, like, I have nothing in common with my mates in school. Like, in terms of just common interests to talk about, I don't have any because I'm obsessed about this one game and spending all my time and energy on it. So, so that was why I decided to stop playing D&D. It wasn't because I was getting teased or bullied or anything like that. And, and we didn't have that whole satanic panic thing that you had in the States. That was a uniquely U.S. phenomenon. Didn't happen anywhere else on the planet. So it was literally just me realizing, I have nothing 
that I can really talk about with my friends because they have a whole bunch of varied interests that a typical 15-year-old has, but I have like a singular interest. And I was like, I need to start having getting more hobbies and stuff. So I stopped playing. But that was it. And then 20 years later, I got back into gaming again in my mid-30s. So that was it. There's quite a lot of folks that have that gap from being, you know, teenagers or whatever to all of a sudden finding the hobby again as they got older. It's definitely not a, an uncommon thing to happen, but I'm glad that it did. You know, you, you brought us Fey Earth, you brought us the your show and, and your game. And so there's definitely a lot of good things to come of it. And, you know, as you get older, your hobbies can start to be a little bit more singular, right? Because you're not trying to impress anybody anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I still have varied hobbies, but right. it was more the fact that, I mean, when you're like teenagers, we are so often at our most narcissistic at that age, you know, and we become so singularly obsessed with ourselves and our worldview that it can be hard to grow at that age if you get one or two obsessions that suck you in, you know? Whereas mm -hmm. if you're in your 20s and your 30s, you can have like a couple of really big consuming hobbies, but still have other interests as well. For sure. So uh, as far as running games, then you mentioned you had planned that whole Planescape arc that, that you didn't ever yeah. actually get to do. But uh, was that kind of like the first game that you ran then? Was the intro there or, or had you done others before? No, that was the very first game I ever ran. And then 20 years later, I'm in my mid-30s and I'm realizing that I don't really have any close friends anymore because of life. My wife and I, we got married and we moved into this beautiful house in the, so one of the suburbs of Dublin. That was a five-minute walk from my best friend's house that him and his wife had. They'd been living there a couple of years. And we'd moved in like three months. And he was like, I got a job offer in Cork, which is one of the other major cities of over 200 kilometers away from Dublin. It's like, we're moving. Uh -huh. And I was like, Are you serious? like, no, you're not moving. I've just moved in here. You're going to have your kids. I'm going to have my kids. We're going to grow old in this part of Dublin what the hell are you doing? You know, it was like, so it was just, I was in my mid-30s, like, I don't really have any close friends anymore because life had gotten in the way of it. You know, people get married, people get jobs, people move, you know? I was like, I need to do something about that. I was like, and at the time, actually, I started watching, I don't know if you ever watched it. It was, um, do you remember the YouTube channel Geek and Sundry? Felicia Day. Yeah, I'm showing my age here, man, you know? This is long before we had Twitch, you know? Long before uh, no. Twitch. It's just funny I, that you mention it. You know, Geek and Sundry definitely has has made a name for themselves, but, but yeah. back in the day, they weren't as popular. You're right. Yeah. But even then, like, they, this was long before Twitch. So Geek and Sundry, they had this show that they ran, uh, Will Whedon, and it was a TTRPG called Titan's Grave. Uh -huh. And it was this really cool cyberpunk setting that was working off of the new Fantasy Age system that Green Ronin Publishing had just released. And it was a short series. Will Wheaton is the GM. What's her name? Laura Thingy from Critical Role. The one Bailey, who plays yeah. Bailey. Laura Bailey. Uh -huh. One of the Green Brothers was in it as well. And it was a really great series. Okay. It was really fun. And I absolutely loved it. I was like, oh, this is brilliant. So I, I bought the books. That was actually a bit of a nightmare to get, get them shipped from the US. It was ridiculous. But I um, got the books. And at the same time as that, I started watching Critical Role. Like I wasn't there from day one, but I started watching season one of Critical Role about four or five weeks after it started. So I basically was a pretty much an OG gritter. And then I put together a game of Titan's Grave. I was like, well, if I have a regular game every week, two weeks, then this is a, you know, as 30-something-year-olds, you need often an excuse to plan things because we're always so busy all the time. I was like, 
hanging out with my friends. So I started running that campaign, always assuming I would be the GM, largely because I couldn't rely on any of my friends to do it. They're just not organized enough. They would say, yeah, that's a really great idea. I'd love to do that. And then six months on, I'd be still saying, hey, so when are we going to start this? So it was like, if I want this to happen, I have to make it happen. And I said, that was about seven years ago. I started running the Titans Grave campaign. And we had players moving in and out, but we did eventually finish that campaign. Shortly after I'd finished that, I then got the idea for Faith. That's yeah. where it started. Uh, All right. Roughly, yeah. So then in your experience running games, I'd love to know what some of the big mistakes or, or uh, problems have, that have come up in your games are, you know, as a result of you running them, and then what you would do to change them or, or what advice you would give to people to avoid making those same mistakes in my day job i'm a maths teacher to teenagers 13 to 18 so as a result of that i am a very organized person because you cannot do that job and not be organized yeah. and one of the most important skills you need as a gm is good organizational skills and i think a lot of the time when people start trying to plan a game that's where they get overwhelmed is they don't plan how they're going to plan it Whereas I didn't have that problem. I'm not trying to sound conceited, but I've not actually had that many challenges with my game. I mean, you get the tech side of things when we decided to start first recording as a podcast and then streaming. But that's a whole, that's got nothing to do with being a GM. That's just yeah. tech, you know? And I'm not a very techy person either. The biggest challenges actually, I feel, are the interpersonal challenges that you have. Now, I'm being very lucky in Fay Earth and that I've got a really great group of friends who all we're all friends with each other we all get on I, i'm very picky about who i invite to my table for fey earth both because when i initially started running the game it was to play test because i was like well i'm writing a system i'm designing an entire ttrpg from scratch so i told my friends who i wanted to play with this is the game this is what i'm doing but you are going to be playtesting. Expect the rules to change over time as yeah. I'm figuring stuff out and tweaking the mechanics. Now, by the time we got to campaign two, which is streaming on Twitch now, like the mechanics are solid and have been for probably two, three years now. But even for campaign two, I was still being very, very picky about who I wanted to invite. Now, I did also run a Curse of Strahd game a few years ago during the pandemic. My first forays into TTRPGs was, was second edition, Obviously, as a Critical Role fan, I'd become, I learned the rules of 5e by watching Critical Role. And like the rules of 5e are pretty simple. If you can understand second edition, 5e is nothing. But when I was running that Curse of Strat game with, with some friends of mine, one of the players in the game became incredibly problematic, like unbelievably so, specifically towards another one of the players. And the weird really? thing about this was, this was re like this is someone who I'd known for years, was a friend of mine, and had the other player, like we'd all known each other for years, we were all friends, and he had actually joined the end of my previous Titans Grave campaign when we were trying to wrap things up and people dropped out, like I need a new player, and I'd, I'd invited him in. And when he came, it was amazing. Like he brought so much to the end of that campaign. It was incredible. He made this brilliant character, but not just a character, his contributions as a player in and out of character were brilliant and like my wife and this my other friend we all loved having him in the game so then we started playing strat and he was behaving like this we're like what the hell is going on here like this is not the same person we've known for years 
it got so bad that the player he was targeting was saying that they were going to just quit the game. And I was like, I promise you there's two, three stretch sessions left and we and we will have finished the entire campaign. So she decided to stick at it. But the problem that I made, we sat down many times, we talked through stuff and all the rest of that. But the big problem that I made was because we were all friends, I was trying to stay friends with everybody. That was the mistake that I made. I should have just not worried about that and dealt with it. Because the reality is I have, bar bumping into that individual a couple of times on the street, we've not spoken now in over three years. And I do very much feel if I had not tried to be friends with everybody and just turn around and said, this is happening, your behavior is unacceptable. And when he started acting and say, no, because this is the way you're behaving towards the male players in the group. This is the way you're behaving towards the female players in the group. You've never been like this before. What the hell is going on? I think we would have dealt with everything very quickly. It never would have gotten as bad as it got. And I'd probably still be friends with the guy. So, yeah, that was a tough one, you know. And it's also something, I think, in this hobby that it's a mistake that people can very easily make because you, the people at your table are your friends and you yeah. want to be friends with everybody. And especially in this situation where we have literally been friends and known each other for years, you know, that when this behavior starts happening and it's being really weird, it's like you don't want to seem like the bad guy and people accusing you of picking sides. But at the same time, you have to be mature about it and realistic about it, too. It's a tough lesson, but a valuable yes. one. You're absolutely right. Usually, un unless you're you know, constantly streaming with strangers, people at your table are your friends, your family, and it's hard sometimes to address stuff like that with them. And I certainly, I feel like I would do the same as you and default to trying to keep the peace and make sure everyone is still friends instead of addressing the behavior, like you said. So yeah, very valuable lesson to learn. And I'm glad that you've learned it now, but it must not have been very fun in the moment, I'm sure. No, it wasn't. And it did put a sour taste to the campaign. And, you know, a friendship lost as a result of right. it, you know? Well, thanks for sharing that one. As far as fun moments, then, good stuff that's happened at your tables, really memorable moments of role play or very emotional, um, that kind of thing. What are some of your favorite moments that have happened in, in games that you've run, whether they be streamed or, or recorded or not? I've had a few fun moments on stream and even sharing some of his clips. Actually, in that Strad campaign, we had one brilliant moment where my friend, who was the one being kind of bullied, she'd made a, um, what do they call it? It's, that, it's the class that um, Matthew Mercer created that Talison played um, in campaign two. Is it the, the, the Blood uh, Hunter? Blood Hunter, thank you. I was going to say Monster Hunter, so she was Blood Hunter. And like had this, the really cool ability where you can shift into the ethereal plane and you can like walk 30 feet or something. So they were on the top of this bridge, spanning this chasm, like 300 foot drop, fighting these of rock, the vulture demon from 5e, or from not 5e, from D&D. &D. Yeah. And her character, this dual wielding blood hunter, um, very much inspired by Arab culture, fighting with two scimitars and described them as being a very dusky appearance and all the rest of that, jumps off the side of the bridge onto the rock's back fighting it kills the creature and it plummets to the ground and the rest of the party's looking at me she's like oh my god no no cash oh my god and i was like as soon as she said that i, was like, I know what you're going to do i says okay neil you know what i'm going to do i was like yeah slips into the ethereal plane walks back up to the bridge appears behind the rest of them also looking over the bridge going hey what what what's up <laughs> Uh, this is funny. I just watched Indiana Jones and the last crusade yesterday. Oh, yeah, and that exact yeah. thing happens, right? Where he like uh, climbs yeah. up and then he's standing with them while they all think he's dead. 
Oh, such a good trope. Such a good there moment. was a really funny moment on stream in our new campaign. My same friend, Christina, who played the Blood Under, she's playing this a wonderful character. Her name is Mina Zweizig, and she is from Switzerland. And now, in the world of Fayer, I created this mercenary group, because historically in Europe, the Swiss were famous as mercenaries. There was about a 250-year uh, period where if you were a duke or a baron and you didn't have Swiss pikemen in your army, you were going to lose whatever war you were fighting. So they were famous for that. So I kind of played on that, and you held up the Swiss guards that are in the Vatican. It's like, and I came up with this idea of a Swiss guard. And they're a type of mercenary who also fight with halberds, but they specialize in fighting giants and trolls and ogres that you would find in the Alps. So her character is a Swiss guard. But because her character is a Swiss guard and she's British who are in the Vatican, she's made this devoutly Catholic character who I love. It's genius. It's absolutely brilliant that she, she's like, because she's like, Christina's an amazing player. I love her to bit. She's like, I know we're not allowed to have favorites, but she's my favorite player in my group, you know? <laughs> and, um, yeah, but, yeah. Um, she's made this incredible character. And then you got one of the other players in the group, um, Neve, who's playing this militant lesbian witch from Cornwall. So she was having, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a fun group. It's a really fun group, okay? So the lesbian witch had been courting this young woman, and then she ends up sleeping with this elf. Now, the elves in Fae are based on the elves from folklore, so think demigods like Lord of the Rings, not your standard D&D elf, okay? Elves are uh -huh. not a playable race in Fae because they're basically demigods. So she ends up sleeping with this other elf. The young maiden that she'd been courting hasn't heard this now, and Mina goes to confession to the priest, and she's like, Bless me, Father, for it's been weeks since we was like, you know, we're so busy fighting all these fey. I haven't been able to come to confession. She's like, you're one of the most devout people. You come here to church more than like my parishioners. You come every morning for morning mass. And you're like, I'm keeping this secret. One of my friends, she has been courting people and in relationships and she betrayed a love. And he's like, and now she's pursuing these other people. And he's like, Okay, well, are you trying to keep the secret to protect your friend or protect the people that she's trying to say, oh, I think it's to protect the people she's hurting. It's like, well, you know, you should talk to your friend. Obviously, the Catholic Church feels courtship is important because it leads to marriage, which is one of the most holy um, sacraments in our faith. But young women must be careful. You know, men can be very persuasive. And if she were to give up her virtue, she could get into trouble, if you know what I mean. And he's like, what do you mean? He's like, well, she could become pregnant. It's like, Oh, no, that's not going to happen at all, Father. That can't happen. He's like, well, you said she's in a relationship. She's like, Father, it's 1872. Come on, get with the times. And it's just like <laughs> hilarious moment as the Catholic priest doesn't know what to say about these two lesbians. It's like, but I have to say my proudest moment as a GM, it was in campaign one. So when we started the game, one of my friends, Neve, who plays the Cornish witch, she was playing, and um, she was actually playing a dwarf because when I originally started Fair. The plan was to have goblins and dwarves as a playable lineage. And then I realized it doesn't work because the fair are just so powerful. You'd be starting with ridiculous levels of world knowledge. You just can't at first level. So in the final version of the game when it's published, it's just going to be human and very human. But she was playing this dwarf. And then she had to leave the game because she got a new job and all the rest of that. And then we were like, we've been playing for like, oh, about a year and a half and really slow burn campaign. The BBEG was this sorcerer inspired by Professor Moriarty from Sherlock Holmes, a hyper-intelligent villain, which, in my opinion, are the scariest villains. 
And I'd been on to Neve about her coming back and we'd arranged it. I was like, okay, yeah, we're going to come back. And um, everything was building up to the climactic fight with the sorcerer and her henchmen. And I'd even had another friend of mine, my brother-in-law, actually, he came to play a druid. And I was like, oh, he's played testing the druids. He's never played any games before, you know, tested. And he was a plan because he was actually a minion working for the BBG. And he turned up and it was like, but this final, like we're in the BBG battle. Things are not going good. The sorcerer, she was a pretty, like, she was like a 14, 15 level sorcerer, and they were like 12th level, so she was tough. She just cast this call lightning spell and just one shot killed one of the major NPC allies, and they were like, we're going to die. But the entire time this was happening, I had my friend Neve listening in on a phone call, and I describe, as you see that, all of a sudden the glass panes behind the professor shatter as an axe comes through the glass, hitting her, coming back and leaping through, you see the form of a fairy figure you have not seen in months, your friend Olaf. And at that moment, she jumped onto the call right there and then. As I described her character appearing in the middle of the battle, they went nuts. They were screaming for five minutes. It was, and it completely shifted the tide of battle. They went from, we're all going to die to, they won the fight when she appeared with her now like 12th level and it was like my proudest moment as a gm like planning that for about two weeks and having it not just in any random encounter but this was the bbeg fight this was the we win or we lose situation appearing in the middle it was it was brilliant it was like my best moment ever in game i love the the planning stuff with other people kind of behind the scenes and letting it pay off in front of the group uh that's always fun you know getting to surprise people but having somebody else be in on it there's just something really satisfying about that all right so you mentioned you had started watching critical role near to its inception Mm. you also were watching that uh geek and sundry series Mm. with the titan's grave system who do you feel like are some of your big DM slash GM inspirations that you um, like to emulate or, you know, you take things from their game to try to add it to your own and make it that much better? Yeah. I will say in the last year or so, I've actually kind of gone off actual plays now. Uh-huh. I've just kind of gotten to say to her, I'd rather be playing my own game than watching other people, even though there's some incredible actual plays. And if I am watching an actual play now, it's usually like a short indie series like I was recently watching it now it was released a few months back but the uh, desi and dragons crew i don't know if you're aware of them they they're, they're pushing or ttrpgs from india i'm friends yeah. with um indrani is one of the og founders they ran a short four episode call of cthulhu game set in 19th century colonial india and that's just brilliant you know having a cthulhu game in that type of a setting and they're all indian playing characters in British colonial India, it was brilliant, you know? But in general, I've kind of gone off the actual plays, but there is still a few that I do love, like Jason Carl, the storyteller for LA by Night and New York by Night. I love the World of Darkness system anyway. I keep poking my wife to run a game for us because she played it for years, but she doesn't want to be a GM. And so I think he's brilliant. His storytelling is brilliant, but not just like, I mean, the thing with World of Darkness is it's very much a social game. As a general rule of thumb, if you get pulled into a fight, in a game of Vampire the Masquerade, it's because you messed up and things have gone horribly wrong. The combat mechanics in that game are so brutal. And that's before you bring in the werewolves and stuff, you know? And the way he weaves those stories is just masterful. I mean, don't get me wrong, Matthew Mercer is brilliant, but I would feel my skill set would be very different to his, I think. The thing about him is he's 
arguably one of the greatest voice actors in the business. Because of that amazing skill, he creates these unbelievably rich three-dimensional characters that has come to life through his voice acting ability. And it's incredible. I do not have that ability at all. So I do love his the depth of his lore. Um, but the other big one I probably like would probably be Brendan Lee Mulligan. I've not watched a lot of Dimension 20. I've watched some. And the thing I love about Mulligan is, I mean, obviously, he's, yet again, very different style to Jason Carl or Matthew Mercer. His background was cottage humor. So he's master of improv and comedic entertainment, which yep. comes through so much in Dimension 20. But the thing I love about him is just how wholesome his games are. He has these beautiful moments in game, whether he's in as the player or as the GM. And I just love that so much. He definitely is a very unique style and very hard to emulate. You know, all of them are hard mm, to emulate, mm, but but mm. I think his in particular, just the mm. how finely tuned those Dimension 20 stories are is is hard mm. to Yeah, beat. Well, I mean, like when you look at that versus something like Critical Role, which is a live action role play, whereas you've got in Dimension 20 where they, it's not scripted, but they do sit down and they plan the episodes and they talk about what story beats they want to hit. It's a table of voice actors versus a table of comedians. So it's a completely different skill set. Yeah, definitely. I know this is kind of a loaded question as the system you're making is completely built from the ground up. But uh, do you have any homebrew rules, you know, anything like that that you like to include in your games that you feel Mm. like add to them, make them more fun? I was thinking about this and like my game is my own. It's a D20 system. If you've played D&D, if you've played Pathfinder... You can pick up the rules of my game in five minutes. And I would actually argue that you'd pick it up in less than five minutes because I've never played Pathfinder, but having played D&D, and also as somebody who teaches maths for a living, and I have students who are incredibly weak, like really severe numeracy skills, I know what confuses people and what people find difficult when it comes to maths and numeracy, which is one of the reasons why I'm not a fan of 5e because I think actually it's an overly complicated system. I deliberately made Fey Earth trying to design a system where the maths is very simple. That was really important to me. Well, from a simple marketing perspective of if it's not a complicated game, people are more likely to try it. But then also in my professional capacity, as someone who works in maths, I was like, no, this is important. I was trying to think of like, is there any mechanics I brought into Fey Earth that I really love that I think you could maybe bring into other games? So one of the ones that I have, it's a grit burning mechanic. So your grit points that you have in the game, if you uh-huh. fail a dice roll for anything except a charm-based roll, your fortitude, your dex, basically any of the stats except for charm, you can burn grit. For every two grit points you burn, you gain an additional plus one to your roll. But it also reduces your max grit temporarily, which is how the exhaustion mechanic in my game works. And if your max grit starts dropping quickly, you become exhausted. And then you start losing points and fortitude and decks, which means your defense is dropping. So it's quite a cumulative snowball type thing, you know? But it's a really great mechanic. Like on Tuesday, we had that happen where one of my players, she was stealthing around and she'd missed a roll and she'd missed it by five. And mm. she was like, well, do you want to burn grit? And I was like, obviously, with this mechanic, you have to tell them how much they've missed by because you can't have them guess. That's unfair. And right. she was like, she was like, oh, maybe. And then I told her, you've missed it by five. So that was 10 grit she was going to be missing. So they're at sixth level now. She's on about 50-something grit. So 20% of her grit gone for this dice roll. And I was like, and you can see in her brain, it's like, 
this is an important dice roll, but is it that important? And I love the mechanic. It's almost like a poison chalice you're offering your players. There's this really tempting mechanic, and they're like, will we do it or will we not? You know, they're trying to weigh up the cost benefit of like, okay, I passed this roll now, which is really important. But then in the next encounter, I'm down on grip points, you know? I love that. I love giving your players an option that will help them here, but could actually end up backfiring later. Yeah, I like that. There are quite a few um, games out there who have something similar, and they'll mm. have kind of the inverse too. Like if if you fail enough times, then you'll get points to, to succeed mm. on something mm. later or whatever, you know. Yeah, I think um, both, everybody both good Apocalypse, I think, have fell forward in the likes as well. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which I do I actually love that mechanic in games. I made a small little, I ran a very small little Kickstarter during the summer for a really fun little rules like TTRPG called Fae Wanderer where you basically, you play fey creatures on a quest to get a treasure, and it's all in the fey realm. A really fun game. The Kickstarter is successful, and I should be releasing it to my backers by Halloween at the latest. My, I'm currently working with my editors, and once that's done, it's just work on the dreaded layout, and then it'll be out. But I did have that mechanic in it, because like the fail forward mechanic. But that was partly because I realized the idea for the game was I wanted a fun, rules-like TTRPG that You've got game night, and two of your players have said, oh, we can't play tonight. You're like, well, crap, we can't play our regular game. But me and the other three, we're still down to play something. Literally, you pick it up, and within 20 minutes, you've created your characters, you've created your adventure, you're ready to rock and roll. And in making such a rules-like game, I accidentally made a game that's actually really great for kids, five- and six-year-old kids who loved it. I was like, I just made a child-friendly TTRPG by complete accident. I was trying to make a TTRPG for lazy gamers. <laughs> but once I realized, oh God, kids will play this, was like, I have to put in a fail forward mechanic because it's a fun mechanic, but especially when you're playing with small kids and if they're not rolling their dice to be able to go, for them to be able to go, okay, I failed, but oh, I have a bonus next time, you know? Yeah, that definitely helps encourage and keep them interested because kids, if they fail too many times, then they mm, become mm, uninterested, mm. right? And now, a word from How Not to DM sponsors. First up, RPG Match. RPGmatch.org is a site dedicated to helping you get matched up with tabletop role-playing game players who like to play like you do. You can select games you're interested in playing, customize your preferred playstyle, and find dozens of folks to fill up your table. RPGmatch.org. Don't roll the dice on who you play with. Signing up for RPGmatch.org is 100% free. And you can head down to the show notes right now and click on a link which will allow you to add the How Not to DM badge to your profile. That way you can find other fans and listeners of the show and trust them that much more. Check it out. Also, a quick shout out to Episodify, the people who helped me produce this show. If you are looking for someone to help you edit your YouTube content, TikTok content, reels, shorts, podcasts, Whatever it might be, Episodify is ready to help you out. They have packages for people who need more or less editing hours during each month. And if you buy more, then you can save more on the editing hours you buy. So if you're a content creator who needs a little extra help or you've started making some money and you're ready to take that editing burden off your lap, then check out Episodify.com. Last but not least, the holidays are coming up, and if you're trying to shop for that nerd in your life, or that child in your life, or yourself, and you can't decide what to buy them, they want dice. Go to adventuredice.ca 
Right now they're doing pre-orders on their advent calendar dice. So they have 24 day advent calendars, 31 day advent calendars, eight day advent calendars. These are perfect for whatever winter holiday you celebrate. And each day you'll get a new pretty dice to add to your collection. And they're really not too expensive either. This is one of their best selling items. They always sell out of these things. So pre-orders are happening now for shipping very soon before the holiday season. Again, that's adventuredice.ca. And if you use the code HN, the number two DM at checkout, you'll get a little discount for yourself and help support the show at the same time. So get those nerds in your life, some dice that you know they want and happy holidays. Thanks so much for listening to the words from all of those sponsors. The sponsors help keep the show running, keep the lights on. Now let's jump into quickfire chaos. Welcome to Quickfire Chaos! This week on Quickfire Chaos, Neil and I are going to roll on some D100 tables from the internet to create a random scenario to roleplay together. Let's get that first D100 roll. Um, 59. I'll let you fill in the blank as to who is requesting this, because we're going to kind of build the NPC here in a second, but someone implores the party or players to kill giant rats living in their basement once down there however the party finds some hallucinogenic mushrooms and spores that cause them to see their greatest fears it's otherwise a perfectly ordinary basement ah okay so the twist is there's not actually anything down there interesting as for the person that you're going to be playing here let's start with your personality trait um 81 Perfectionist, a propensity for being displeased with anything that is not perfect or does not meet extremely high standards. All right. Next up is the voice description for the NPC. So how they might oh. sound. <laughs> I'm not going to make you do an accent. but, but. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, 65. Speaks in soft, eloquent tones that are as smooth as silk. People have <laughs> said the Irish accent is a very soft and smooth accent, so... You know, if you speak slowly, we were joking about this before we started recording that uh, Neil was telling me that Americans speak really slow and, and it's true. So uh, kind of funny <laughs> that, that you have to speak slow and smooth for the for the role play. Last but not least, the NPC job. I don't know that I rolled this already. 58. Did I roll that already? Nope, that's new. Okay. 58 is lumberjack. All right. An eloquent lumberjack. A perfectionist lumberjack. Yeah. Okay. I will be... A person who looks like they worship some sort of deity. So like, you know, kind of priestly looking robes. Maybe some sort of symbol emblazoned on the front of the robe that's sewn in. Very simple though, like not flashy or anything. Probably like a rope belt and a a simple pack. And I'm wondering wherever you're going to set the scene. Okay, so as I stumble out of the house, my face covered in sweat. The sweat of fear and terror. I pause for a moment, leaning on my axe, gasping, getting my breath. And as I get up and con- go to continue on looking for the, the housewife at the time, I bump into this individual in uh, priestly robes, I think. I'm like, oh, oh, yeah. oh, 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 I'm terribly, I'm terribly sorry, my friend. I, I was just trying to, oh, dear God, the, the horror. The horror of it all, it's, it's the clucking and the feathers 
and those beady eyes, they just, they, they pierce through your soul as if to your very core, looking to pull you down to the very depths of Hades itself, and, and, uh, and, oh, I'm sorry, 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 um, this, I didn't, and I go to, like, brush your robes, worry that I've got some dirt on them, <laughs> right. and, Right. I, 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 I fixed it. I, I've ruffled it, fixing the lapels and. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll probably like pat you on the shoulder and say, "No, no, it's okay. It, it seems as though you're quite disoriented, friend, and you've dealt with something horrible. Uh, please tell me what what troubles you so. It sounded as if you were describing uh, birds of some sort, but that were pulling you down to the depths of Hades." I was I was employed by this this woman who said that her her basement was filled with these giant rats and while I'm not necessarily a warrior I'm a strong man you know I'm chopping lumber all day in the forests and she, I, I guess she thought this is a trustworthy fellow and asked if I could go in but when I went into the domicile and I went to explore it for these rodent interlopers I discovered that it was not, in fact, such creatures, but something far, far worse. A flock of feral turkeys. Turkeys? Yes. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, yes. People, that's, people. uh... I, I, I'm sorry, I, I just am, am wondering how one person would think they're rats while another would think they're turkeys, because <laughs> they are quite different animals, uh, but... Uh, I, this is very strange. You, is it just this house here that you were, were, were yes, just uh, a, under? Yes, just a, there pointing, I just exited. I, I, I suspected the turkeys probably killed and ate the rats. They are savage, vile creatures. I have faced them many times in the forest, fiercely territorial. Their beaks can slice through your flesh like nothing at all, the, the claws on those scaly taloned feet, they could they could rend through clothing and I would suspect even armor, but I I think no one realizes that because those poor fallen heroes don't live to tell the tale. But, but, I, but. I can't say I've ever had this experience with a, with a, a fowl of the sword, but I, I trust you, uh, as seeing as you are one who, who spends most their time in the woods. Uh, perhaps we can go speak to the the woman of the house and uh, determine uh, what uh, what could be afoot here. Uh, yes, uh, sh shall we? Shall we go and and, and ask her? Uh, that, that that that's a good idea. She she said that she was going to be in the in the front living room space. Um, quite 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 a lovely. Quite, quite, quite a lovely room. In fact, um, excellent decor and beautiful arrangement of furniture. It was quite impressive, really. You know, I must say myself. And please, please, after you, sir. Gesture yes, forward. Yes, let's go. Let's go speak with her. We go into the room, and you see this woman sitting in a corner. In she's looking quite terrified, looking yeah. around feverishly, muttering that she can hear the squeaks and the scampering of their feet. As uh, she looks up and sees us both, and I go just like, "Madam, I I I went down into the basement, like you said." And and as I'm saying this, I'm just 
like without even realizing it, I'm like moving stuff and like ordering stuff on the side table and like making sure that the doilies are perfectly centered and you know, <laughs> not even realizing I'm doing it. As a, a the, the rats, the rats are gone, are gone, madam, but they've been replaced by a, a far more fearsome fowl. Yes, uh, uh, my friend here, he he said that he's uh, noticed that the 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 beasts are no longer there, but. But perhaps you can shed some light. How long have you lived here? And, and uh, w- w- you know, w- w- when did you notice these rats had, had come? Well, um, I've, I've, I've been here, oh, about 15 years or so myself, my dear. And, um, like, it's only in the last little while that it really... I've been complaining to himself that there's some terrible must and molds growing down in the basement. And he kept saying he was going to look after it. And he would do it soon, but you know, soon seemed to be a a, a distant spot on the horizon. You know what men are like now. But um, um, but then that the, the, that musty moldiness had gotten quite quite bad now at this point. Like practically mushrooms growing out of the side of the wall. I got to say, and um, then then about a day or two ago, I think it was. Was it three days ago? I'm not sure. So what day is it today? Is today is today Friday or is it? But. Um, anyway, so yeah, and and I went down and I saw these giant rats. They looked to be nearly the size of a great dame. They were enormous, and obviously oh. I ran screaming and crying. And then I went, I told himself to go and look at it, and he said, like this is how I, I think he was drinking because when he went down, he said all he saw was my mother. <laughs> <clears throat> Oh, uh, y- your mother, ah, uh, well, so you, uh, encountered rats. Uh, I've never liked rats, I've got to say, they've always given me the heebie-jeebies, I hate them, they're horrible creatures, and she just shudders as she says it. And, and your, your husband has encountered your mother, his, his mother-in-law, uh, and this, uh, strapping man, uh, pat, pat the lumberjack a bit, uh, has encountered turkeys. Uh, but but large, fierce turkeys. Ah, mm, I tell you what, mm, I've got some rope in my bag, and I will tie it around my waist. You there, uh, good good lumberjack. Uh, mm, Reginald, I will, sorry, I forgot to introduce uh, myself. The name is Reginald. Uh, sorry, yeah, I not introduce myself either. Uh, Reginald, I will venture into the basement, and uh, if I give two tugs on the rope, please just pull me out and don't don't worry about dragging me. I, you know, I uh, I might get a few bumps and bruises, but whatever is down there, I, I have a feeling that uh, it's it's going to be different for me as well. And uh, perhaps we can find a way to discover what it is. But uh, yes, sir, do do come with me, and and I'll venture in alone. But uh, pull me out, and, uh, and 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 let's see what we can find here. Very good, sir. Very good, sir. So following on and getting ready with the rope and wrapping it a bit around my waist as well and holding it like it's almost like I'm posing like, you know, a TikTok <laughs> video <laughs> as I get ready to tug you back. <clears throat> right. Uh, probably like light a, a lamp or something and, and mm-hmm. head in. I think the scene ends with the NPC screaming, nuns, nuns. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, his whoever his uh, his primary school teacher was, right? Yes. Like, <laughs> sister so and so. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I love it. A few weird pieces, but I think you made them all fit together nicely. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. 
All right, so we've talked a little bit about Fey Earth so far, Neil. We've mentioned um, you've got an actual play. Uh, it's a game that you're writing, but tell us in, in more detail, where did the idea come from? You know, How did you start out on this project, and where are you at currently in the Fey Earth project here? God, I think it must be nearly seven years ago now. My wife could nearly tell you the date. She's brilliant at that stuff, but I think like it was about more than five, maybe seven years ago. I've been at this a long time. It's crazy. One day, an idea just popped into my head from the ether. What would it be like if you had a world, an earth, where all the creatures in folklore and fairy tale were real, had always been real, and lived alongside humanity? And that was it. That one singular idea, that one singular thought popped into my head. And it just kept bouncing around in there for a few days until I was like, this is a brilliant idea for a game. Now, by that stage, I'd already been running Titan's Grave, and I'd like... And even with Titan's Grave, I ended up porting it over to 5e because I had a lot of issues with the Fantasy Age mechanics, and um, I didn't like it. It was it was a really great idea, but the core rulebook read like a beta version, basically. Yeah. Um, and um, so I've heard they've got other game systems, Green Ronin, that are like much better than that one. Although that one is still hugely popular, especially in the indie scene, which I find funny. But I was like, this idea is popping my head. I was like, okay, this is actually a really great idea for a game. I should write this. Why don't I write this? And I started thinking about it. And my initial go-to idea was, I'll write this as a 5e module, like an alternate module type system that I can put on Kickstarter. You see stuff like this all the time. It'll be really great. People love stuff to do with the Fae. But the whole idea of the whole singular focus of my idea had been creatures from folklore and fairy tale. That was my whole point. And I very quickly realized I cannot do this in 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons because there are so many creatures in that game that their names come from European, not just European, but initially European folklore, and they are nothing at all remotely like what they were like in their original stories. Gary yeah. Gygax basically got his hand on a book of European fairy tales and just went through it and stole all the names. You know, if it was any other part of the world, he'd be getting accused of the worst and most flagrant cultural appropriation. But people didn't think of it that way because it was a white guy talking about stories from Europe, you know. But it, it like, he just completely disrespected hundreds of years of culture across an entire continent. I was like, this will not work in 5e. I cannot have it work in 5e at all. The creatures are so different. I have to make my own system. And at that stage, I was way more experienced and knowledgeable in Dungeons and Dragons and D20 systems. The Fantasy Age system uses 3D6, but D20 was what I was by far the most comfortable with. And also I realized D&D makes up, it's estimated up to 90% of all TTRPG players, with a lot of them only playing D&D. So I was like, well, if that's the market, then... If my game is a D20 system, someone who's only ever played D20 systems is more likely to try it out because yeah. it's familiar to them. And that was basically where it all started. And I just started reading and more reading and researching. I have put in, I'm not exaggerating at all, thousands of hours of research at this point on folklore. And when I say folklore, I'm always trying to go to the most original primary sources. The oldest stories, the original yeah. ones that are recorded. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is hard at times. It's very hard because the thing that I found 
in my research that I was quite surprised by was just how little folklore has been preserved across Europe. I mean, in Ireland, we're spoiled. It's ridiculous. We have like, we, Ireland has some of the most highly preserved folklore in the world. The Scots, the Welsh, the same, you know, the Nordic countries, they preserved a lot of their folklore as well to the prose and the poetic edit and the likes. But once you go outside of the Celtic nations and the Nordic nations, it's shocking how much was lost. If it wasn't for people like the Grimm brothers, Calvino in Italy, uh, Dollery, and like a few, literally a handful of people scattered across Europe, these stories would all be gone. It's interesting. Um, I, I suppose like a lot of Asian cultures have really rich folklore. Mm-hmm. They recorded well, right? And also the um, when you get into the Enlightenment period and you had these very intelligent, scholarly, rich white men telling the peasants these stories are nonsense. Stop worrying about these superstitions and these stories of witches and fairies. They're not real. They don't exist. And there was this intellectual push against custom and folkloric belief in much of Europe. You see it heavily in France, but also in other places. The church was always a factor. I mean, in Ireland, it was funny because what basically happened in Ireland, you had our ancient gods, two of the Danon, and then the church came along, and then the two of the Danon became the she, or the fairies. They never went away. They just changed form over the centuries, and they were still preserved in our folklore and in our culture. I mean, to put into context like just how ridiculously well-preserved it, it is, there's Ducus, which is the Irish Folklore Heritage Association. It's a governmental body. And in the 1950s, they sent men and women across the entire country to all the primary schools of Ireland and simply asked the kids, write down all the stories you know that your parents, that your grandparents have told you, all of the folklore, all the myths, all the legends from your local place, and write them in your copies. They collected those copies, and then in the last 10 years or so, they were scanned and digitized. So we actually in Ireland have a scanned and digitized collection of thousands of handwritten copies written by children in the 1950s telling the stories that their grandparents would have told them who would have been born in the late 1800s. Yeah. And the stories they were telling, they would have been told by their grandparents in the mid to early 1800s. And you can literally go online, tukas.ie, and you can go into the archive and do a word search of these copies. It's crazy. And that's just, oh, that's just a thing we have. That's uh, really cool that that the country has recognized the importance and the value of that and and put so much time and effort into it. That's that's awesome. That's just that's a big difference though when you if you're playing Fair Earth, is that like you come across a fairy or a kobold or something like that, and you're like, it's so different to what you're used to. And even when I was creating the stat blocks for them, the way I created the stat blocks was I had like any fake creature they have three sets of stat blocks, young, adult, and ancient version of the creature, because yeah. it was like, they can't all have all of the powers that they had in the stories, otherwise a single fairy can TPK any party under level 10. So how do I create a system whereby you can be actually encountering these creatures and not be worried about that, you know? But the great thing about that is, you can be throwing these creatures at your party at lower levels, and they can be like... Oh, okay, and then they get, they defeat them, they overcome them in, in an encounter, and then they bump into some more at a higher level, like, oh, we got this, we faced these guys before, but the one that they faced the first time was a young goblin, this is an adult, or or worse, an ancient goblin, and you are in for a world of pain now. But they don't realize it until it's too late. 
Mm-hmm. Always fun to pull a fast one on your players like that. Yeah. Building a ga- uh, game from the ground up is pretty daunting. I know you mentioned you're using a D20 system, but if you were to go back and restart writing Fey Earth from scratch, what do you feel like you would change if you could change anything? First thing I do is I change the dice build mechanics. I actually really love dice build mechanics a lot over a D20 system. D20 is great because you get your critical fail and your critical success, but it's a horribly swingy system. The maths and the stats behind rolling a single a single die, it's it's horrible. And with a dice pool system, you get to avoid that. Also with a dice pool system, well-made dice pool mechanics, you get to more collectively pool different skills and resources in a way that's often challenging in a d20 system so it just gives you more creativity or gives your players more creativity so definitely that's the first thing that i would do i would have changed it to a d effort to a dice pool system having been writing it for many years i'm much more familiar with the maths behind how those would work so i'm confident that i could do it even though i have not actually physically played in many dice pool systems i've learned a bit about them you know the other big massive change that i would make to fair as an indie creator who's never created anything ever, is I would have parked it on the back burner and made three or four small indie games first. Because, good God, having your first ever project be on that scale. I mean, like, to put into context, please God, next year we'll run our Kickstarter, I'll raise the money, I can publish my game. It's going to be a single core rule book, which the first half is going to be basically your player's handbook, and a middle section, which is your GM's guide. And then the back bit of it is going to be the Monster's Manual, my zoological manual, all in one book, okay? So great value for money, but it's going to be 250 to 300 pages. It's a massive game. It's huge. And it's going to be wonderful and great, and everybody should play it. But as an indie creator, and especially as an indie creator who's not creating content for 5e, I genuinely think if I had started off with a couple of fun small games first, and had that success, and my name was out as, oh, that's Neil, oh, he's created this game, and this game, and this game, he's a really cool guy, oh, did you hear, he's making this massive game, where you're like, it's 19th century Earth, but there's fairies and magic in it, it would have completely changed everything, and would have also made it so much easier to market my game, and that's the, without question, that's the single hardest thing, as an indie creator, is marketing your game, but, you will have more success if you start small with fun, small little games and get a couple of things published with your name out there that people know about you. You've created a few things. Then people are inviting you to collaborate with them. So then when you want to move on to your big swan song project, it's then everything becomes easier. That's really good advice, honestly. Um, I mean, I haven't tried to tackle writing a whole game myself like this yet, but having done a couple of smaller projects, like doing something bigger now, even though I haven't decided to do it yet, is a lot less daunting because I, mm-hmm. I know kind of like from the ground up how to do it. Kind of segueing from that conversation into your Kickstarter, you attempted to kickstart this game last year, last yeah. fall, I believe. And unfortunately, you landed short, right? So what did you learn from your first attempt? And what are you going to do differently the second attempt that you feel like is going to make it more likely for you to succeed? First thing I learned is Kickstarters are really hard. Oh. Ridiculously hard. I mean, I know you had your little one, the 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 hot sauce one. Yep. And that was a small Kickstarter. So you know how much work went into that, you know? Oh, so much work. It's for, ridiculous. For, for nothing. Yeah. It, they're so ridiculously hard. And for like most people's first Kickstarter fails. That's a simple statement of fact. And it's quite a high 
failure rate. It's like over 70%, I think, of, of first Kickstarter attempts fail. So it's quite hard. When I first launched it, people, lots of people complaining. I said, what's the game about? Tell us more about it. You know, and I was like, worried, okay, if I if I gave too much information, people will get bored because people have an attention span of a not. They won't read more than three paragraphs. But I realized, no, no, no. Next, this time around, it's like info dump. With, now, I do, since that Kickstarter, have more artwork. This is one of the things that really, really frustrates me. And if this was not a family-friendly podcast, I would be using more accurate vocabulary right now. <laughs> but that really bothers me about Kickstarters is... A lot of people will not back a Kickstarter unless the Kickstarter campaign has lots of artwork in it. Artwork is often the single biggest expense you as a TTRPG creator have, yep. which is why you run a Kickstarter. If I wanted to publish Fey Earth with all of the bells and whistles and have it perfect the way I want, my art budget would be anywhere from 10 to 15,000 euros. But this time around, I have a lot more artwork for the game. I have one of my friends who's created this really amazing promo trailer for the game. I'm lucky. I'm in a very privileged position where I live in a country where we respect education and we respect teachers and we're very well paid. So I have been able to, just from my own income as a teacher, being able to save and put aside money myself paying out of pocket for commissions for artists, commissions for things like trailers and all the rest of that, so that when I do launch the Kickstarter, it's going to have all the artwork that people wanted. It's going to have the promo trailer and all the rest of that. The other big thing, of course, is when I launched it the first time, I think I started promoting it like two, three months before. I had hoped to have the preview page for the Kickstarter up today, but mm. I had an incident where I'd submitted it for review. It came back all good. And then I clicked what I thought was the button telling me to launch the preview page, but it actually launched the Kickstarter campaign itself. Even though I had said in it that the launch date was like the 3rd of March. So I was like, oh, crap. I immediately had to cancel the thing and then had to resubmit the whole bloody project. So it's going to be this, like the 2nd or 3rd of October, I will launch the preview page. So, Great. so by the time this comes out, that link will be live. So I'll make sure to include yes, it in the show definitely. notes. Definitely, yeah. it will be live. You can click to be notified. The other thing as well is I, I now have I'm slowly building up a team. The first time I did this, uh, this entire project has been all on my own. I've like literally spent the last seven years designing this entire world on my own. All the writing has been me. All the research has been me. The only thing that hasn't been me is the artwork because I can't even draw a straight line. Everything has been me, which is so crazy hard. But unfortunately, while I have a lot of friends and people who want to support me, that's different to having people who, who will say, yes, I will join your team. I have one friend from Twitter who's officially joined my team and is going to be helping me with marketing. And hopefully I'll get one or two more people helping with that to try and help promote it. And now I will have a good, it'll be five months of promoting the Kickstarter before it goes live so that it will hopefully this time round succeed. There's so much work goes into it. Yeah, about half of my Kickstarter budget or half of what I raised went to art. Yeah, so yeah. It's not cheap. Yeah, those are good lessons. Part of building your own game has been playtesting it, right? And mm -hmm. uh, part of your playtesting has been your actual play show. So mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about that show and then maybe what's been really difficult about running a, a system that is being built and then maybe what's the most rewarding part about the actual play show. Well, I'll answer your last question first. 
Designing a game as you're running it, when I first started it, we were playing once a fortnight. It was around my kitchen table. It was our home private game, so I wasn't having to worry about audio recordings or streaming or anything like that. So that made that all so much easier. And the fact that it was with my friends who knew, who had been warned, yeah, the rules will be changing. In terms of the other challenges, the basic stuff of, we started recording our first campaign uploading it as a podcast last year but like at that stage we were at 60th level that was a five-year campaign we went we, we went from first to 20th level which never happens nobody gets to 20th level in gaming unless they make a 20th level character for a one shot and in campaign one they got to 20th level and then they fought the bbeg the final battle was crazy we met for nine hours played for seven and a half when i was editing for the podcast for our first campaign i would cut our sessions into two episodes because i personally think approximately 60 minutes is the perfect length for a podcast episode so that final episode was like six parts long because it was like this epic 20th level culmination of five years for campaign two we started with the podcast and then we moved to twitch and that was tough there was a lot of technical stuff a lot of me on the phone to my internet service provider, you know, <laughs> upgrading my broadband package. I got a new computer. The graphics card alone was like 450 euro. You know, oh, wow. it's like, yeah, it's like ridiculous. This, this, this ridiculous machine is like seven, that was like 900 euro, maybe a, a, a grand. And like nearly half the price was just a graphics card. Do you need to do that? No, but kind of, yes, I think. If you want to stream, there's certain things that you need that have to be good, like your graphics card. You don't need to spend 300 euros on a camera, and you don't need to spend 500 euros on a mic, but you do need a good graphics card and a good processor. So there's that kind of stuff, you know? And then mm. beyond that, it's just trying to constantly promote the, the stream. It's a really fun game. We stream on Tuesdays at 8 o'clock Dublin time, which is like Central European minus one. We're the same time zone as London. And we stream from 8 o'clock till 10, so it's about two hours, okay? It is unusual in that all of my players, it's an all-femme group except me, and it is quite diverse. Um, we have LGBTQ plus representation, BIPOC representation as well, and I'm quite proud of that in the game. The game itself, it's set in the year 1872, and it is in France, and it is six months since the Franco-Prussian War, but obviously, because it's my world, I get to play with history. So in the world of Feyerd, the Franco-Prussian War wasn't a war between Prussia and France, but rather the Fey nation of Arcadia, which is kind of nestled between France and Germany and has existed since the fall of the Roman Empire. The king of that nation, the Elven King, died, and he'd been the ruler of this kingdom for like seven, eight hundred years. So that brought shockwaves across Europe, because this is the, one of the most powerful nations in Europe. Seeing this Otto von Bismarck goes to Napoleon III of France and goes, so they've had a change of leadership. I think they're vulnerable. Let's attack. In Fayer, the Franco-Prussian War was an alliance between France and Prussia. Yeah. And it was a bloody war. For the first time ever, the Fey were suffering casualties on the battlefield because of modern rifling technology and modern artillery. But then they changed their tactics. And then in May of 1871, they launched this devastating attack, wiping out thousands of Prussian and French soldiers. Some say they used some ancient magics. Other soldiers who survived swear that they saw dragons on the battlefield, but people don't believe them because nobody has seen a dragon in Europe in 500 years. 
and that is our game. We're now like seven, eight months since that in a France that is dealing with the results of this war. So you have some people who are hating the Fay, and then you have other people hating the rich and the politicians saying it was the wealthy ruling class that sent our sons and, and husbands to war. So it's a very divided France now as well. And we've got this band of women who are finding themselves stuck as kind of intermediaries between Fay and human communities and trying to kind of keep the peace where they can. It's not your classic D&D game. You're not like cracking skulls, knocking down doors, looking for loot. There's a bit more politics in it. And if there's an encounter, the first thing that's usually been asked is, how can we solve this without starting a fight and maybe getting killed? Always a good goal. Always a good goal to start with. (laughs) Yeah. What are some of your words of wisdom or encouragement, that kind of thing, to people who are out there running games, thinking about running games? And then also I'd love for you to address folks out there who are designing games or thinking about designing games. You know, give them some advice. If you are thinking of running a game, my advice is just do it. Don't be worried. You are not Matthew Mercer. You're not Jason Carl. But you don't have to because you're you and it's going to be your table with your friends or your Zoom call or whatever with your friends. Don't be worried. You do not need to be perfect. No one is perfect. Even when you interview those godlike DMs that people worship, they talk about all the mistakes and mess ups they make every week in their game. So just do it and don't be worrying about it. Okay. The, the, the great secret of being a GM is your players don't know when you messed up because they don't know what was supposed to happen. That's the great secret of it all, you know? And if you're somebody who is an indie creator, start small and reach out to other people. Talk to other creators. Say hi to other creators. I'm not going to say it's a perfect community. Every community has its problems, of course. But there are some really wonderful, really great people, especially in the indie scene, which is that bit smaller. But there are really great creators out there. And if you just start talking to people, introduce yourself, share your ideas, people will jump on and they'll tell you how great they are. And they'll give you advice if you ask for it and suggestions and help and you'll very quickly find you've got a bunch of friends that you didn't know were out there who are all helping each other tell our stories. All right. So you mentioned you're hoping to have the Kickstarter link ready by the time the show comes out. Also hoping mm-hmm. to launch the Kickstarter early next year. Do you have kind of like timeframes for folks? And then also where can they find you and, and more about your show and your work? You can find me on itch.io at fay-earth.itch.io. I'm also on drive RPG under the title Bramble Heart Games. Bramble Heart Games is like the little indie company that I created for if and when I publish Fay Earth. And you can find, I have an early release version of my core rulebook there, some one-shots with pre-gen characters and quick play guide, a really fun starter adventure with pre-gen characters and quick play guide. I do have my other game that I had this Kickstarter for earlier this summer, Faye Wanderer, really fun rules like TGRPG. That will be out hopefully by Halloween. So that will be on both Drive2RPG at Bramble Heart Games and on itch.io at Faye-Earth. So you can find all my stuff there. I am still on Twitter because that is all it will ever be called, and I refuse to call it anything else, at Faye Earth. If you have gotten a Blue Sky invite, I am also there, at Faye Earth. I am on TikTok, at Faye underscore Earth, despite the fact that I am far, far too old to be on TikTok. Um, <laughs> you and me both. On YouTube, um, and that's something I am quite proud of, is that I, like every time we stream on Twitch, usually within 
12 to 24 hours, I have the VOD of our session up on YouTube. So all of our previous shows, except there was one episode where the audio didn't record or something, but all of our other stuff is on YouTube at Fay Earth as well. And then I'm on Twitch at Fay Earth every Tuesday, 8 o'clock Dublin time. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Neil. It's been a ton of fun, and it's been fun to interact with you, let's see, probably two and a half years now that, that I've been yeah. kind of online, yeah. and, and yeah. so, yeah, it's been good to get to know you better and also uh, have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me, Derek. Thank you for listening to How Not to DM. Now for a sneak peek into next week's guest, Doug Lewandowski, game designer of Kids on Bikes, Kids on Brooms, Teens in Space, and the current work in progress, Kids in Capes. I've gotten to the point now where even sometimes I'll just give them a puzzle and I'm like, I don't know how they're going to solve this. I'm just going to let them twist until they like figure out something that I'm like, yeah, great. That sounds good. Seeing people solve things in unexpected ways is awesome. To hear more from Doug about his GMing style, the design process for his wildly popular, story-driven, flavorful games, and more, tune in next week. If you enjoyed the show and want to support me, there are tons of easy ways like tipping me a few dollars on Kofi or PayPal, or by buying things for your own games from my affiliate links. Again, those are located in my link tree. I've got links for dice, minis, tabletop gaming accessories, published content, and even geeky apparel. Last of all, I'm proud to support Diversity Saves, a tabletop role-playing game charity which donates money to diverse up-and-coming creators working on their very first projects. It's a great cause, and I'm really excited to see what awesome stuff people will create. My intro and outro music is by Daniel Zombo. The Quickfire Chaos theme is by Exacat, and the Quickfire Chaos mood music is by my friend Arcane Anthems. And until next time, roll some Nat 20s for me.